So <laughs> there. Mm-hmm. I heard that, brother. All right. Well, if you're with me here this morning, if you would please turn your copies of God's Word to Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10. You will see that is in front of you. We have another genealogy. We encountered a, our genealogy, our list of names of the families of the earth before in Genesis chapter 5. And now we are given yet another one here in Genesis chapter 10. And what I'm going to do uh, to, to aid our attention is I'm going to read just the first couple of verses. We will read the entirety of the chapter, but we will do so as we go along. Uh, so, so we can kind of help maintain who we're looking at, what we're seeing, and it kind of helps so it's not just a long list of Hebrew uh, to, to help uh, stultify us at the very beginning. So, here in Genesis chapter 10, we read the following words here in verse 1. Listen carefully, because this is also God's word to you. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our text that is in front of us today. Oh Lord, we thank you for this list of names and for the things that you tell us about the families of the earth Lord, I pray that we would see that your word is true in saying that all scripture is profitable. So help us to profit from this list here today. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genealogies are one of the most encouraging portions of scripture. And the reason why that sounds like a funny statement is because we don't read them and think on them. You remember at the very end of last, at the very end of 2023, we looked through Psalm 1 and learned about what it meant to meditate on God's word, to turn it over in our hearts over and over and over again to see all that's in there. It's harder for us to do that with a genealogy at least up front. We will assume that what we're looking at is a long list of names that, if we're really honest, just don't come up all that much in Scripture, if at all. So what's the point of hearing all of this? I don't know if you've ever had the experience of listening to somebody who is very excitedly explaining to you all the nuances of a particular fantasy novel or movie that they're really into. And because they're your friend, you listen and you nod along for a little while. But after the third or fourth name that sounds like somebody fell asleep on their keyboard, you lose interest and you drop into a half listen because you know you're not going to need to hear or, under, or remember where Boromir comes from or what the King of Gondor is all about. What we have here in this, yes, it's another list of confusing names. But this is not fantasy. This is real. These are real people who had lives just as glorious and complex as our own. Who are here and are listed for us for a reason. 
God isn't throwing this in there because that's what you need to do for opening credits of a new episode. God isn't throwing this in here to test our discipline for our daily Bible readings. He has these things here because he wants us to notice something about this list. He wants us to profit from it. And it's important and in the Bible just like John 3.16 is. So it's worth our notice to see what's here. Now, it's going to require a little bit more work than John 3.16. All of the Bible is a gold mine. But if we approach it with an amateur's sorting plate, all you'll get is flakes. If you're willing to pick up the pickaxe and swing at the rock a few more times, you'll find there's just as much gold here. So we're going to take a look at our passage that's in front of us, and we're going to see, as usual, our two points that are today, that are on the back of the prayer guide inserted for you in the bulletin. We have point number one is that God's people don't look like much. Number one, God's people don't look like much, and we'll see why I think that from this list here in a moment. But number two, that God is faithful to his promises in time. In time. God is faithful to his promises. So we are going to take a look as we jump in this morning. We have to remember, as we're reading all the Bible, we're needing to remember who it is that first gets to hear this. Who was this book written to? This was to recently released slaves, the sons of Israel. And they are reading about all of these people and hearing about all of these nations that they are about to go in and interact with in a violent way. This is something that they are sitting up and listening for because this is their history. This is where they've come from. And it's no different for us. Remember, in the flood, everybody was wiped out except Noah and his family. So everyone is coming from one of these three sons that we just listed here at the beginning in verse 1. So, as we jump in here, we're going to have just a couple of things to help us keep some things straight, some ground rules, some context for us. One thing you'll notice, we're going to alternate back and forth as we do between these are the sons of and this was the father of. When we see the word sons mentioned, this is pointing to the heads of families. So these are the guys who are going to be the founders. And then when you get further on, you're going to have so-and-so fathered the rest. This is the development of that family. So you would see main branch, the the sons of Noah, Shem, who fathered so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. That's how this thing is breaking down. And next, in terms of history, where are we in terms of time? So if we were to imagine uh, that the beginning of the earth, Genesis chapter 1, is year zero, we're about year 2000 right now in chapter 10. So this is how the world would would have existed around 2000 years after creation. This is also 2,000 years before Jesus shows up. So we get kind of an idea as to where we are in time. We'll also take a note, as commentators point out, chapters 10 and 11 are a little out of order. Chapter 11 actually happens first. 
We have the Tower of Babel show up where everybody groups in together. They've all got one language. They're all one people. They build this tower out of rebellion. We'll look at that next week. And God scatters them all into these nations. So here in chapter 10, we're showing here's a catalog of all the nations and where all the people have come from. Chapter 11 is going to explain why they're all split in different areas and have different languages and different tribal identities. So that's just to help kind of set this tone where we are in Genesis. So we're going to begin here with the sons of Japheth here in verse 2. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riftha, Tograma, and the sons of Javan. Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and, and Dodanim. From these, the coastlands peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language by their clans in their nations. You're going to see that phrase show up a lot, reminding you there's been a division here. And we'll find out why in chapter 11. So here with Japheth, you'll notice this is the least amount of space that's dedicated to these people. As we remember back from chapter 9, we have Shem and Japheth. They're under blessing, the sons of Canaan, under the curse. The sons of Japheth are not going to interact with the people of Israel as much. They will, but not as much. So we don't get as much treatment with them, so we send them along the way. To give you an idea of where they are geographically, these people, they end up in Europe and in the parts of Asia Minor and some of the, the islands in the Mediterranean Sea. That's why we, these, they're good at building ships. I wonder why. Uh, these are the coastlands people. So this would have been, near as we can tell, where a lot of the Gentiles come from, is from Japheth. Um, perhaps if you're of European descent, this might be our portion of Noah's family tree. But we're going to move on, and we're going to spend a lot of time here with the sons of Ham in verse 6. Now, you're going to notice here from verse 6 all the way down to verse 20, all of this is from the guy who sinned against Abraham. And what you're going to notice is of all people, these have the most impressive accomplishments. You'll see a great king show up. We're going to deal with him in a moment. You're going to see great cities being built. We're going to see that in a moment. They are also the ones who spread out to where modern-day Israel is. It's where all the Canaanites end up. And the rest of the sons of Ham spread out over North Africa and some parts of Arabia. So you'll notice, for example, they mentioned a guy whose name is Egypt. Guess which country he founds. Yeah, Egypt, one of the most powerful places in the known world, especially at this time when the Israelites are reading about it. Like, we just escaped four centuries of slavery from these people and have seen the Great Pyramids and have seen the military might of Egypt. And they're wondering, how does this tie with chapter 9? I thought this was the disobedient crowd. I thought these were the cursed people. And they're the ones living in the land of milk and honey for the last 400 years. So as we approach this, I want to think of it the best way that I can think to call it. Is to try to picture things in America. If we were to put this into our own geography, you would have the sons of Japheth maybe founding some of the port cities in America. 
I think maybe Boston or Mobile would be the ones on the water. But if you were to imagine the people that come from the line of Ham, think about cities like Los Angeles, New York, Atlanta, Baton Rouge, because they're on the Mississippi. Think about how much economics you can do in a city like that. That's what the sons of Ham would have built. Think about how much trade you would be able to do with the rest of the world. Because as we're about to find out later on here, the sons of Shem, the blessed people, they end up in, to put it in our American context, Bismarck, North Dakota. No offense to North Dakota. (laughs) But that's where they end up. Sort of in the tail end of Arabia and in some parts of the Mesopotamian River. Not a lot of access to the rest of it. They weren't in Egypt. They're not New York. But that's who the Lord is going to deal with. So as we again, as we unpack who the sons of Ham are and what they're doing, we're going to remember that God's people often are not very impressive looking. So let's jump in. The sons of Ham, again, the man who sinned against his father. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. We'll see him pop up more. Sons of Cush, Seba, Havelia, Sabata, Rama, and Saptica. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. Rehoboth Ir, Kalah, and Resin between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. I'm going to pause here for a moment. Let's talk about Nimrod. Nimrod, aside from a very unintimidating sounding name, was a very intimidating person. So as near as we can tell, a mighty man would have been a man of war. Probably one of the first great kings, maybe emperor, in the world. And he was called a mighty hunter so much so that he becomes proverbial. If you're, if you got to shoot your deer, they were saying, man, you shot like Nimrod. This was, again, the bad family. But here is Nimrod founding all of these cities. Now, let's take a look at some of these cities. Well, as we begin, the first city is there is Babel. We'll spend more time there in chapter 11. It was an impressive piece, but it turned out, but it ended kind of funny. And then he goes on. You'll notice there are some other places that he mentions. In the land of Shinar ultimately becomes the center of the Babylonian Empire. So Babylon is founded here early on by Mr. Nimrod. He wasn't just a one-hit wonder either, but he also started the city of Assyria, or, and the, the big city of Nineveh, which would have been the capital of the Assyrian Empire later. Want to take a guess at who were the two empires to enslave Israel and Judah again in about a thousand years from now? Yeah, Assyria and the Babylonians. The Assyrians come along in about 700 years before Christ, about 1,300 years after this was written. The Assyrians are going to capture, burn Jerusalem, and take all of their inhabitants away. 
And then another 200 years after that, about 586 BC, the Babylonians are going to come and take out the rest of Judah and take them into captivity. Again, this is from the sons of Ham, the bad guys. But they're the ones with all the spears. They're the ones with all the chariots. They're the ones with all the might. As we'll find out later on. And as we move along here in verse 13, we get Egypt. Of course, founding the nation of Egypt. He fathered Ladim, Anaim, Lebahim, Naphtaim, Pathrusim, Kalusim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorium. Now, when we get here for the Philistines in verse 14, these are the people that are going to come up all the time. The Philistines were a huge pain for Israel from basically the book of Judges on through a lot of the kings. These were the folks that were constantly raiding and causing problems for the nation of Israel. And these weren't just folks that would come in and make some mischief, like they killed Saul. They captured the Ark of the Covenant one time. These were really hard people to deal with. And it comes here from this line. Again, this is answering the question, remember how we looked at last time, how sin can affect generations. And how we're looking at the line of Ham is producing these same sorts of people that are going to become trouble for Israel again and again and again. Now, we take a look here in the Canaanites, verse 15, as we move on to our second point, that God is faithful to his promises in time. Remember, it's not Ham that was cursed, but Canaan that was cursed in his line, and all the people that show up from here. Now, you'll notice all of these ites, that's not a single name, this is a group of people, folks that live in a particular city. Also, and I didn't mention this earlier, that, that those last two letters, im, I am, that's the Hebrew way of saying plural. So usually this is referring to a family or to a group of people. So here we're going to get on to the ites. And I want you to pay attention to these ites. Because once you see and notice them and commit them, at least these first few, you're going to see these guys pop up over and over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Especially as we get into places like Joshua, Judges, and the Kings. Even the Psalms will mention these as saying, hey, we defeated these people. It's going to show up again. So listen carefully. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heph. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinaites, the, the Arvidites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites. Afterwards, the clans of the, Can- of the Canaanites dispersed. We'll find out why next chapter. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Admon, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. Notice some of those names, some of those cities. Seeing some of the curse work its way out in some of these places later on. As we continue, these are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. This is the group. So as we look on here with the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, and all of these guys, 
we're going to see these lists show up again. In fact, in Exodus chapter 3, 17 and 13, 5, God is telling the Israelites, these are the people that are currently in the land that I promised to you. Now, we'll see where that promise takes place when we get to Abraham. But he's going to promise to Abraham, I'm going to give your kids this land. The nation of modern-day modern Israel, roughly, is how is the, the land that he's giving to these people. But now all of these people currently live in it. He lets them know at the beginning of Exodus, you're going to drive out these people. And then in Exodus 13, he's going to say, you're going to drive out these people. You're on your way. I've convinced Pharaoh to let you go, and we're on our way. But when we get to Numbers 13, Numbers 13, 29, actually, we'll see the Israelites are hanging out. The Israelites are the sons of Shem, by the way, promised people. They're at the border of Canaan. Say, hey, this is the land. We're going to go get it. Go in, spy it out, see what we're going for. And they come back and they say, this is an amazing land. There's milk, there's honey, there's internet. It's amazing what's going on over there in Canaan. But the only problem is there's no way we're going to be able to take it. The spies say, the people are huge. These are like the giants that we talked about in early Genesis. There's no way we're going to be able to get into this land. Now you can think if they've read... Genesis 9 already, the thought would be, no, that's ours. Like it was promised. These are the cursed people. But they're big. I've got all this great land. Do we not think the same way today? We get so easily discouraged when poll numbers slide. We get so easily discouraged when numbers deflate. But guys, this is our history. I know there's a lot of Hebrew names here. But this is our family history. As we're going to see when we get on to chapter 12, the focus of the Bible is going to narrow. Right now, we're seeing all the families of the earth. 70-some nations are being represented here. We're going to narrow our focus as, as we go on to see the line of Abraham, which we're going to take our spiritual heritage from. We should be used to not looking impressive. We should be used to our only actual hope is God. The reason why they were able to kick out the Canaanites is because God was with them. And in fact, he's going to make that very point to them later on when God says, the reason why all of these people were driven out was not by your swords, because I drove them out from before you. Now what's interesting, when we get on to Joshua chapter 9, we'll see these people show up again. Particularly the Hivites in Joshua 9, 7. You can write that down and read that this afternoon. But in short, Israel is supposed to come through and wipe out all the Canaanites. And the Canaanites trick the Israelites, into making a promise that they won't kill them. They pretended to be from way far away and tricked them with some arts and crafts and theater. And they made a promise to the Hivites, saying, all right, we won't kill you. Then later, they didn't ask God about it, so they make this promise without consulting, and it turns out it's the Hivites. It's the descents 
from Canaan. Now I've made a promise to them. Now what are we going to do? Well, interestingly enough, in Joshua 9-7, we find out that the Hivites become the servants of Israel. Does that sound familiar? Remember how Canaan was going to be a servant of servants to the line of Shem and Japheth? There's the start. I mean, it's one tribe, but it's a start. But that promise doesn't show up for 400 years. Again, we're in year 2000 here in chapter 10. By the time the Israelites get out, we're another 400 years from now. It takes a while. And the promise is fulfilled one family. One group of people. Joshua 9-7. And in fact, if we get on into Joshua 15, 15-63, we find out there's a group of people that are still in the land even after they've occupied it. 63, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day. They're able to get almost everybody, but there's still one group of people that are occupying the capital. Come on! So close! Well, we'll find out later that God has a plan for these Jebusites. Turn with me. This time, turn with me. This one's especially worth your attention. 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9. We look at verse 15. It says, And this is the account of the forced labor, read slavery, that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house. So, what follows is a list of people who helped build God's temple and who helped build Solomon's palace. Look here at verse 20 and see if you recognize some names. All the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves. And so they are to this day. There it is. The Canaanites serving the line of Shem. It only took 1,040 years by the time you get to the reign of King Solomon. But there they are. But can you imagine what it was like for the people of Israel for all those years leading up to it? They could point at something and say, see, God doesn't do what he says he's going to do. He said these people were going to be the servant of servants to us. He promised that all the way back to Noah. And look at those Jebusites. They're still there. Look at those Amorites. They're still there. Look at those Hivites. They're still there. God doesn't fulfill what he says he's going to do. Do you do that? God said he would take care of me. Why am I in so much pain? God said if I trained up my child in the way he should go, no one will depart from it. My child is not with the Lord right now. God promised me that I would have peace and assurance, and I have neither. You can point to things. And if you decide that you're going to limit 
God's faithfulness to he does everything at your will at the moment you want it, you're always going to find reason to doubt. But if you're familiar with your family history, which is what we're looking at now, can you see how gloriously God fulfills this promise? It's like he holds these people in reserve. I'm going to let the Jebusites hang on to Jerusalem for another few hundred years. We're going to let King David be the one to take that over. And that's going to be the place where I'm going to found my temple. And by the way, the people that are going to build the temple are the ones you've been complaining about for the last few hundred years. They're going to build the place where God is going to be on earth. They are going to build the walls where the nations will come to encounter the God of the creation. That's my plan for these cursed people. That's how God works. And by the way, he doesn't change. Promises take time. It takes a while to develop people for a few hundred years. You know what the Canaanites were doing in the land besides defiling it? While the Israelites were toiling away in slavery, building cities, planting orchards, getting farmland going. Even in their prosperity, they were serving future Israel. It takes a while to establish a country. And they've done it all. And Israel gets to walk in. Here's our land, full of milk and honey. Fresh fruits and vegetables, all planted, all ready. That's how our God works. We can't be discouraged on temporary setbacks. We also have to get our thinking from the Bible of how quick is quick. Our world has taught us that quick is a second. If you want something, you pull it up on your phone. You want Chick-fil-A, unless it's a Sunday, you can tap and someone will bring it to you. You don't have to get up, except at the door. We have so narrowed our focus of God's work to be what's happening in my life right now. God works in your life right now, but you're not the only life he works in. Your life is a part of this massive tapestry that he's building. All of these names that we have long since forgotten are not forgotten by God. That he has a plan to work with all of these people. And ultimately has them build a place where God can meet with man. And that's a privilege that man hasn't had since Eden. The Canaanites, in some way, help rebuild Eden. So if God can do that with a people that he has self-consciously cursed, what can he do under a new covenant? Let's explore that. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. And let's take a close look at what the Lord has planned. 
Matthew chapter 15, which we read here this morning, is very purposeful. Did you happen to catch the identity of the woman that comes to meet with Jesus in this moment? Let's look. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Heard that name? And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Look at us, invoking another genealogy. I know who you are. You're the son of David from the line of Shem. And here is a Canaanite woman approaching the Savior. What is going to be done? Let's listen. Verse 23. But he, it is Jesus, did not answer her a word. And the disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, the idea of the dog here, this is not a cute puppy. That wasn't the case here in Israel's time. These were wild, feral animals that you didn't want to have anything to do with. Does it surprise you Jesus talks like that? Believe it or not, Jesus is not trying to be mean for mean's sake. He's drawing out something out of this woman. We're being reminded who this is and where this person is from. But notice how she answers, verse 27. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. 28, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Here Jesus, from the line of Shem, serves Canaan. He comes and he gives this woman the healing that she desires for her daughter. Because she says, I'm not asking for the whole loaf. I just want a little crumb. And Jesus says, you can have the crumb. But does Jesus stop there for the nations of the world? No. Jesus goes much further than the bread from the master's table to give to the dogs. The master gets up from his seat and throws himself under the table to be eaten himself. Jesus doesn't give the nations just bread. He gives them himself. The service that he gives is not a word of healing, but it is the offering of his own life. When he is at the Last Supper and breaks the bread and says, this is my body which is broken for you, he's not just talking to the disciples, he's talking to the nations of the world, which we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 10. It comes full circle here with Jesus. And he's drawing this out of this woman, saying, here is faith in the midst of Canaan. 
There is hope even from a generational curse that's been there for thousands of years. Where does that faith come from? Not from the Canaanite woman. As we know from Ephesians chapter 2, faith is a gift. That faith that that woman had was a gift from Jesus. And now he offers it to the world. That's the plan. It doesn't end in Genesis chapter 10. It doesn't end with impressive cities. In fact, it's interesting. Some of the cities that Nimrod founds, some of these great cities, by the time people like Alexander the Great come along, a couple hundred years before Jesus, we don't even talk about those cities anymore. They walk right past the ruins of those cities and the historians don't even mention it. The plans and the great accomplishments of Ham, Canaan, and Nimrod, they all fall apart. But the line of Shem produces the Savior of the world. That's why I can state with conviction that God fulfills His promises in time. So what's been promised to us? There is a land that is being prepared for us even now that is better than a land flowing with milk and honey and fresh fruits and vegetables. But it's in the presence of God for whom there is no need of a sun because the glory of God lights the world. Jonathan Edwards speculated that we will probably be able to see more of the universe because it won't be lit by a sun, it'll be lit by glory. The glory from God. Y'all, we can be encouraged by that. The reason this is impacting me so much here today, Abby and I, we have or she, has a student in one of her schools in Birmingham. He committed suicide this week at the age of 17. What do you say to a situation like that? There isn't any Christian cliche that you can give to parents suffering from something like that. And suffering in some form or another, maybe not to that degree, but some suffering like that is coming for each and every one of us in one day or time. I want you to be prepared for that. And the way that you're prepared for that is by not looking at what's present for you in the moment. If that's what Israel was looking at, they could always look at those Jebusites and the Amorites and the Hivites and people that continue to be problems for them. In fact, even after the reign of Solomon, even after they've built the temple later on when the Israelites have been kicked out of their land and then brought back in, the Amorites, the Jebusites, they come back. And they almost corrupt the bloodline in Ezra chapter 9. They could look at continuing trouble and say, God's not faithful. Guys, you need more pages. We can't just read our page 
We've got to see all the pages of Scripture and how he is working things out. From the beginning of all of these nations, fractured because of their sin at the Tower of Babel, but all united, every nation, tribe, and tongue before the throne of Jesus, saying, Glory! Jesus is Lord! Guys, that's the end of the movie. The end of suffering and the beginning of eternity, of joy. That's where it's moving. Get used to holding on to that. Practice grabbing that with your heart. Because you're going to need it. Life is hard. You can't stick with the Christian calendar cliches at the bookstore. You need truth. You need genealogies. You need real history to help you face the future. So what do I want you to take away from this here today? One is that God is very faithful to his promises and faithful to you because he's been faithful to your family Since the literal beginning, he has fulfilled his promises in time. So trust that. Don't trust the news. Don't let your emotions get shot high and down and up and down over everything that's posted online. Don't read studies with trembling hands wondering, is this the year in which Christianity is worthless? Stop doing that. Look to him. Look to your history. And remember that even the things that become your greatest source of irritation, the greatest troubles, which you can imagine for Israel in the land probably would have been those Jebusites mocking them from Jerusalem. That they became the fulfillment of a unique glory for Israel on earth. In Romans chapter 8, we're being told that all things work together for good for those who love God. And that he is preparing a glory such that the light momentary afflictions for us are counted as nothing. And are in fact preparing us for that glory. That the very thing that is causing you to shed tears of grief right now will be the thing that causes you to shed tears of gratitude in heaven. We're saying, this thing pushed me to Jesus. Yes, it was hard. Yes, it caused tears. But now I can see what God was doing with it all this time. And all I can shed is tears of gratitude for those things that I once hated. He is equally involved in your pains and in your triumphs. History shows us that. Genealogies show us that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, Father of nations, ruler of the world, King of kings and Lord of lords, 
pray that you would help us to see your glory. Help us to see your beauty and worship you for who you are. Help us to trust in the plan that you have written and that you are working even in and through the actions of us. Lord, may we leave here today encouraged and ready to embrace you. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. If you're here with us today and you don't know Jesus, then all those trials that you're going through are not working for your good just yet. So if you don't know Christ, come speak with me afterward and help me to introduce you to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's died for you. He was raised for you. And he offers you hope even today. For now, let us sing our closing hymn in Christ alone. If you would please stand with me.